This program made possible by grants from Nemo Health, Speakeasy, TrackNet, and DocShop Pro. In just a moment, the program will begin. Okay, welcome to our third edition of uh, Essential Adaptations. It's amazing how quickly and how fast stuff is going. Uh, we have a great show for you today. We've got um, a special guest that we're going to bring in shortly, John. We've got uh, a full docket of uh, stuff we need to get to. We've got a puzzler as usual. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about some emails we got. And then we're going to do a new section called uh, Good Google News. Uh, but before we get to uh, our guest, I want to talk about something... Uh, that's going on in the community and that is what we all know is the OIG and we know that the OIG has a work plan for 2020 and uh, the interesting thing about that is podiatry is named in that uh, lucky podiatry and some of the things that it, it names that it wants to target is enum visits on the same day as routine foot care and we talked about routine foot care last uh, episode also being targeted for podiatry are ancillary services, grafts, wound care, you name it. But the most troubling thing, and our guest will address this when we get to him, is the OIG has hired uh, the first ever chief officer of data. And the quotes from uh, what I read on the uh, article uh, talking about the chief officer of data is they want to put data at the fingertips of OIG auditors. And that concerns me greatly. There's, John, there is uh, nothing good that can come from that. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, we'll so, get to that. I, I mean, that's a perfect segue, by the way, Jeff. Perfect seg segue into today's, into today's guest. Yes, uh, it is. I'm sure. But, uh, but before we get to our, our guest, uh, Vince, I want to talk to you really quickly about some great emails we got. So um, we have... Uh, uh, a way for viewers to reach us. It's at infoessentialadaptations.com. So we got a couple great ones I want to let you know because I read them. Uh, a couple said, keep up the good work. Another one said, it's about time. Podiatry had a good live voice. One said, great topic, listening to Dr. Lockwood. That was last week. Uh, another one said, thank you for the routine foot care issue, which I need to address really quick for us. Another one said, Jeff, you talk too much. So, uh, given that mix, uh, I, I think it's good. So, uh, really quickly, uh, I want to hit on the routine foot care issue. I promised everybody, uh, a way to see the actual document, uh, that, um, talks about, uh, not doing lesions at the DAPJ. Unfortunately, the link to that, uh, document is huge. Uh, so what I did, John, is I put it, um, basically at the bottom of uh, a website and that way you can see it very easily um, it's at the bottom of uh, podiatryrisk.com slash speakeasy and I'll put that up for people to see because um, it's uh, a big document it's a long URL it would be impossible for me to repeat it but here's the site it's up now 
Uh, this is where they go at the bottom of the page. You click it. It says what it is, and it'll, it'll allow you to read that document for yourself. And as always, and you said podiatryrisk.com is podiatryriskgroup. Yes, yes, it's podiatryriskgroup.com/slash/speakeasy. So you can get that document if you are doing routine foot care. You must read this document. So that'll be good. Okay, yep. John, uh, I think we are ready for our guest today. Um, and uh, so uh, on the screen with us now, uh, you'll see uh, Vincent uh, Butachi. Um, John, did you read his uh, resume of, of who he is and his credentials? So I did. Uh, you know, first of all, how you doing, Vince? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. You're, you're very welcome. It's a pleasure to have you. Happy Wednesday. I hope your week is going well so far. Um, but... I did look at your, uh, you know, I asked Vince to give us a, a short bio. And uh, Vince, I got to about chapter three of it. And, <laughs> and I, that was about all I could, uh, all I could do. So if you will, just tell us a little bit about yourself um, and give us really a, a, a crib note version of your bio. Sure, sure. My name is Vincent Batachi. I'm a co-founding member of Batachi, Liardi and Warner. We're a boutique healthcare law firm in Princeton, New Jersey, although we do work throughout the country. And one of the things that I've done throughout my career is I've represented providers in post-payment audits and fraud investigations initiated by both the private insurance carriers as well as government payers. Great. And that's exactly why we wanted you on this episode, Vince. We know that these audits are ramping up terribly. It's affecting many of our colleagues. In fact, one of the sole projects that uh, Dr. Frederick and myself are engaged in right now is really equipped to combat that, uh, what's going on today in the, in the world of these audits. Uh, the product that many are now learning about called Speakeasy, which is an ancillary mm -hmm. add-on to an electronic health record that really can help mitigate the losses of an audit based upon how speakeasy works and how, how it really makes your note very comprehensive and compliant. But when we talk about economic losses, Vince, give us an idea, you know, in the work that you've done with practitioners, what are some of the economic magnitudes of these audits? Like what, what, do, what do doctors wind up having to suffer economically through? Sure. And John, it's funny. I was thinking about this. I've been representing providers and audits now for 20 years. And I remember the very first one that I handled. I was two months after passing the bar. And it was a $720,000 overpayment demand by Medicaid for a youth behavioral health program for developmentally disabled youth. And the allegation was that they were billing for a full day of service when only a half day was rendered. And to make matters worse with Medicaid in New Jersey, you actually have this strange requirement that when there is an overpayment that's issued, the Medicaid department can actually then put a lien on someone's real property in the state of New Jersey. And mm -hmm. so, you know, and that that was just the beginning. I actually had hair when I first started representing providers and audits. But generally speaking, the audits that we handle tend to be in the six figure range and above. I think the largest that we have right now is a twenty five million dollar overpayment demand. 
and then really the only smaller demands, the ones that are in the tens of thousands that we address are those that are given to us as panel counsel on various insurance panels. Got it. So in your work with these clients, what specifically, and let's just focus on chart notes and charting, sure. what specific deficiencies really uh, do you feel uh, cause the practitioner from issues? Well, the, the biggest thing to understand about audits, and this is why documentation is so important, is that all claims are adjudicated electronically. doesn't matter who the carrier is that you're talking about. So when a provider submits a claim, it's literally taken at face value. Every diagnosis code, every CPT code, every modifier. And it's not until after the fact that when records are requested that ultimately it's determined whether that code or whether that particular modifier has been justified by the patient record. So the biggest thing that, that we see, I mean, obviously, you have the parade of horribles of things that, that carriers can look at. And I'm talking about both public and private. Obviously, ghost billing, which is billing for a service that was never rendered. Upcoding, so billing for a greater level of service than was actually provided. And you particularly see that with E&Ms. Unbundling, billing for a exam on the same day as a procedure in certain instances. Cluster billing is a big one that you see, particularly as it relates to physical therapy, where if you look at the claims, it looks like the same thing is done for every single patient that walks in the door. You see the very same CPT codes. The biggest one with respect to documentation is medical necessity. Ultimately, your records have to support what you did and why you did it. And, you know, it's funny, I'm, I'm old enough to remember that the very best records, when I first started out in practice, you had a lot of physicians that dictated their notes and they had transcription companies. And it was great for someone like me. I'm, I'm a lawyer. I'm not a doctor, but I could review those records. And ultimately, I understood the entire story of that patient's care, because that's ultimately what a medical record is. It's meant to tell the story of why the patient was treated, how they were treated, when they were treated, who treated them. And ultimately, that's how it's supposed to read. Unfortunately, it doesn't all that frequently anymore. Got it. I'm going to capitalize on something you just said there for a minute, Vince. And then, Jeff, I'll let you shoehorn a word in here edgewise because I don't want to ask all the questions. But it, it's intriguing that you you talked briefly about unbundling. And I'm often asked this question, um, and, and, and I'd like you to shed some light on it, if you will. If a physician unbundles, but the carrier doesn't pay the physician, in other words, they, they basically pay for just the primary procedure that should have been paid for, the unbundling was never paid for, mm -hmm. is that physician still at risk, uh, you know, or are they basically free and clear because they were never paid? Do they still put themselves at risk, even though the carrier didn't pay? They absolutely do, because particularly with respect to a fraud claim, it doesn't matter whether there is an economic loss to the carrier. 
It's just a question of whether there was a misrepresentation as to the nature of the service. Most providers lose sight of the fact that a claim form, a CMS 1500, is a legal certification that the service happened as billed. And, you know, if you have one of the old paper forms, if you flip it over on the back, that's exactly what it says, particularly as it relates to Medicare and Medicaid. But the private carriers interpret it the very same way. So just because if a provider has unbundled and the carrier doesn't pay it, it still does not absolve the provider. So let's uh, uh, let me ask you this, because uh, as audits became more and more frequent in the podiatric community, it always started with they wanted 10 notes, then they wanted 20 notes, then they wanted five notes. And there was a lot of uh, insurance carriers checking on the viability of the patients or whatever they were doing in the background. Then you get practitioners who say, well, they asked me for 100 charts. Is that the worry point where, oh, boy, they're asking for a lot so that fishing expedition is a lot more than I'm just checking to see the diagnoses that you used in your practice. What, what do you feel as an attorney is if they're asking for 100 charts, I should have some concern? You, you should have some concern. But I would also say if they're asking for 20 charts, you should have some concern. And the reason is that most of the time mm-hmm. the findings are extrapolated across the entire universe of your patients as they relate to that specific carrier. So we've seen audits that are 20 charts, 50 charts that have turned into multi-million dollar overpayment demands because of the extrapolation. Believe it or not, sometimes the more charts that are requested, sometimes you're going to get a little bit of a better shake. Hmm. Uh, you, you talked about extrapolation and, and we opened the show talking about the OIG bringing in a data specialist or czar or chief officer of data, which scares the crap out of me because data can, can data can do a lot of things, good and bad, mostly bad in this case. Um, most cases that I've worked with, uh, the extrapolation is the money. It's where it is. Um, in your in your experience, um, the way that it's being extrapolated and the way that the data is being uh, pushed out into the universe of what this doctor does, is that easy to combat? Is it, is it an easy way to say, well, your statistical analysis is a piece of crap? And statistically, it's an unsound method that you're doing. It is provided that you have really good records. That's what it comes down to. Because the basically your provider profile, you could call it what you will. It used to be provider profiling. Now it's data analytics or data mining. Basically, it's a tool that's used by all of the carriers, particularly used by the OIG now, where what they essentially do is they assign a point value for every diagnosis code, every procedure code, and every modifier that a provider reports. And they compare that provider to other providers of the same discipline in the same geographic region. So if you just happen to have a much more successful practice, odds are you're going to be audited. Now, it doesn't matter if your profile looks a little bit, you know, out of whack as opposed to your colleagues down the street, so long as the codes that you selected accurately describe the services that you rendered, and your documentation supports everything that you did. At that point, then you have very little to worry about. 
And so ultimately, it's the data that's going to drive an audit necessarily, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have an overpayment. So let's talk so a little bit about may, that. Yeah. Hang, hang on one second, because again, I want to just reference something Vince said, and Vince probably doesn't even know this. Um, but that data is so important that Jeff, you know, that's why in TrackNet we have the code audits, code audit compliance feature where Vince, our our base two thousand TrackNet users can at any time with a click of a button see how their certain top CPT codes measure up against the utilization of their colleagues, two thousand doctors across the United States. So I think just knowledge of that data is extremely powerful to know whether you're an overutilizer and in some cases even an underutilizer. That's absolutely fantastic. So the other yeah. part of that, John, ahead, is uh, let's talk about the documentation part of it. And both of us have been in practice long enough to know that's the biggest pain in the ass because <laughs> the words that are in an LCD policy or what, and I always say LCD because Medicare is the only carrier that documents everything in the world and that's the gold standard we all go by so let's assume medicare here the words that are important to medicare are not necessarily the words that are important while you treat a patient however right. if you want to be paid and protected those words are extremely important and to be able to to document that and make it unique enough to the patient that you're seeing uh, without it being a boilerplate or without it uh, missing any words is is more important than anything, I would think. It is. It is. But, you know, one of the dangers that has existed with electronic health records is that in many instances, they talk a lot but say very little, right? There's a lot written, but they don't actually say very much. And so many of them work off of templates. You know, I, I was joking around with my partner, Paul. I had reviewed these records and they read like war and peace, but they didn't say a thing. And sometimes it gets very difficult because it's hard to differentiate an examination and a re-exam from a routine office visit. And that becomes really challenging where, where again, it's you have to have that personalized note that while it includes everything as it relates to a coverage policy, that's always key, but it needs to actually be specific and germane to that patient that's in front of you. Very good. So Vince, uh, I'm going to take a risk here and ask you a question. Sure. Um, I mentioned to your partner, John Liardi, that I was going to ask you this question. And John said, you're out of your damn mind, because if you <laughs> ask him that question, this could take you an entire weekend. Yeah. Um, but I want you to tell us, a, <laughs> I want you to tell us a nightmare story. Um, but again, you know, this it's, it's late Wednesday evening. We, we sure. have a certain amount of I'm here. Uh, so let's prove John Lee already wrong that you're going to be verbally efficient, but tell us, sure. tell us a sure. good nightmare story to, sure. I, uh, I'll, to just intrigue us to the magnitude of this. Sure. I'll give you two because what, what we consider to be a nightmare may be different from that of your viewers. What I mean by that is in a lot of ways, it's easy to represent a guilty person. Okay, so I don't almost consider that to be as much of a nightmare, but I will give you one of those. We had a provider who was being audited by Aetna, 
and there was $360,000 that was at issue. 200000 of it were for services that absolutely never happened, and another 180000 there were no notes at all, nothing. And the funny thing about it was that I was working with a criminal defense attorney, and he wanted to engage a a very well-known consulting firm that has all these former FBI agents. And I said, what, what's the point of that? There are no notes. You're not going to be able to come up with anything. But ultimately, that wound up settling for 180000 and the provider kept his license, and there was no prosecution. But here's my nightmare scenarios are the instances where you're dealing with a phenomenal doctor that you would send your loved one to that really just has awful notes. And we had one instance in particular that, you know, it's, it's almost difficult to get over. A phenomenal neurologist who had a very early electronic health record system, and he never really upgraded. And he did a lot of neurodiagnostic tests. He also did a lot of procedures at a surgery center. And Really, it was one of those Dropbox systems, and if you didn't change patient demographic in there, it could default to the patient you had just seen. So his records were an absolute mess, and he was a really, really busy doctor. To make a long story short, he was audited by literally every carrier in this state, hip carriers, and it ultimately, he was then prosecuted by the Board of Medical Examiners because of his documentation. He was fully exonerated. However, it cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the worst part is, you knew the services were medically necessary. You knew that the patients he treated got better. And it was just his records were that terrible that it led to all of these problems. So, so those are the nightmare scenarios for us because it breaks your heart. The one of the yeah. uh, things uh, that most people don't realize, and John and I have been on the other side in practice, it's a pain in the ass to document correctly. And it, it detracts, uh, I don't care what anybody says, it detracts from patient care. It makes it very difficult uh, for the physician to provide good care. Um, it's nothing but a headache. The government mandated that we get into EHRs for every one of our practices, kind of fooled us all into doing it, so we did it. Um, the amount of documentation is immense. And um, John, this is, this is why Speakeasy was born. I don't know, Vince, we haven't, haven't really told you about this. Um, so given the hurdle of trying to document correctly, what would be the primary? It would be a hybrid between the dictation and uh, an EHR. If we could create a hybrid where you could say what you needed to say, yet the technology was smart enough to bring in LCD information and your findings could be accurate just using your voice, doctors would just love that. Well, luckily, we did launch something like that called Speakeasy. We're not here to sell Speakeasy or that kind of stuff. But I, I just wanted your take on that because um, we engineered it to be able to bring in LCD language, yet giving you the ability to customize and say whatever you needed to say. Because voice technology now is accurate, not the old crap that it used to be. Um, so 
hearing what you have said, I think that's a perfect fit for uh, a busy doctor trying to do it, especially that neurologist. I mean, that would have been perfect for him. Uh, being able to say what he needed to say about the patient, saying a few words like removed kidney or whatever, and it would explode into the correct procedure for him. Um, I think that's the future, no doubt. Well, there's, there's no question about that. A product like that, what you're doing is you're, you're bringing all of the advantages that you used to have in an old dictation system with everything that's great about EHR. And, you know, it, it really, it would make my job easy. And, and I know that none of this is designed to make lawyers' lives more simple. But, you know, ultimately, that will, it, it will save your users millions of dollars. I like that. Um, yep. So we talked, John, we talked about uh, when they request records, how many they request and, and, and that kind of stuff. So from your point of view, from a, a legal point of view, uh, I'll get a, a request for 10 records. Do I start sweating? Do I call my attorney? What, what steps do I take other than don't ever alter a record? We know that. That's, that's the most important right. piece. Because believe it or not, your electronic health records times and date stamp everything. So don't think you're going to get away with yep. anything. That's just silly. You can always add addendums. I know yep. that. You can say, I can add something to a record. That's fine to do. But what are the steps that you would recommend for our, our fellow uh, colleagues when they get a records request, and at what point do they engage legal? Well, and, and I, Jeff, I'm going to add a part B to that, sure. if I may. I'm going to add a part B, Vince. Aside from getting a record request, let's also ask you, uh, what should the steps be for a doctor who has an actual auditor show up at their door? Sure. Unannounced. Sure. So the, the record request scenario first, there is no harm in speaking to counsel when you get that record request. I know there are a lot of doctors that worry about that and they say, well, you know, if I have a lawyer, does it make me look guilty? The answer to that is no. There are attorneys on the other side, first and foremost. But let's say in the event that you have a doctor that does not engage counsel initially, the first thing you want to do with a record request is take it seriously. There are a lot of doctors, and I've never understood this, they ignore it. Sometimes you have staff people that will ignore it and not want to panic the doctor. Again, I've never understood that either. But you most certainly want to take it seriously and adhere to the deadlines set forth in the record request. If you need more time and you don't have an attorney, you can always reach out to the investigator, request more time. They will typically give it to you and just keep it limited to requesting more time. Don't volunteer information. They're not your friends. Don't try to have a conversation with them. You want to be as inclusive as possible when compiling the records. Sometimes there'll be a specific date range that they'll ask for, but you want to include the initial exam and the most recent re-exam, even if they don't fall within that date range, okay? The doctor should always either do this himself or herself, or at a minimum, review it himself or herself. One of the biggest mistakes that we see is that a lot of times you'll have sometimes the lowest paid and 
least qualified person in an office compile the records to be produced in an audit. And, you know, again, there's so much riding on it that you never want to do that. So even if you have your staff assisting you, you ultimately need to own it and you need to take the time to review it. And then here's maybe the most difficult piece. Once those records go out, whether your attorney submits them or you submit them yourself, you have to, as best as possible, put the audit out of your mind and continue to practice. And the reason that I say that is they don't turn around results immediately. It could be months down the line. It could be a year down the line. You may never even hear anything because a lot of times they don't say, your records were fantastic, we're just moving on. Many times you just don't ever hear anything from the auditor. So you you have to put it out of your mind and, and engage in practice as best you can. Now, if an auditor shows up at your office, which is the ultimate anxiety-inducing scenario, the first thing you want to do is to verify that individual's credentials. Make sure they are who they say they are. And then you're going to have to make the determination as well, you know, if it's a carrier that you're out of network with, you do not have to grant access to your office. If it's a carrier that you're in network with or Medicare or the board, you do. That all being said, you can request or have your attorney request that they come back at a time that patients are not in the office. And by the way, during COVID-19, they will most certainly grant that request for you. But, you know, most auditors will provide you that courtesy. They don't want to be in the way necessarily while there are patients there. So at a minimum, again, you want to verify credentials. And then the second thing is you want to make sure that they are coming back at a time if they if they actually should have access to your office, that they're coming back at a time that there are not patients present. Have you noticed a, a severe increase in the trend that audits are now? We know it's part of practice. We know just a request for records is part of practice. But are you seeing more and more cases coming up uh, and your your law firm is engaging more and more than, say, the last 10 years? Yes, yes. And, and the reason for that is, again, everything has transitioned to a game of sort of pay and chase to more data analytics and data mining. Everything is more provider profile based than it ever was in the past. So we're seeing a sharp increase in audits across all provider types. Uh, not so nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a part of practice. Uh, and we're hoping that uh, at least what you've said today will help people deal with it in an in effective manner. One last question, because we're already at 31 minutes, believe it or not, that time is flying. Um, let's talk about uh, choosing an attorney. And obviously, you, mm -hmm. we, you're a great attorney, and, and this is what okay. you do. But uh, not everybody uh, uh, knows how to figure this out. Because uh, what I have seen in the past is every area has, oh, this attorney and this attorney are the two that help defend doctors. Um, how do you make that decision? Or how should a physician look at that and say, okay, this is the, the firm that I, I particularly would want? The the doctor really needs to, you have to have an open and honest conversation with that potential lawyer. 
And it's not just enough to pick someone that's a healthcare attorney. There are a lot of great healthcare attorneys that are strictly transactional healthcare attorneys. They've never handled an audit. They've never litigated a case. They've never handled the board matter. So you really have to engage that potential lawyer in, in a pretty healthy and honest dialogue as to what level of experience he or she has handling post-payment audits. And also, too, audits that things go off the rails, because that's the one thing that people tend to overlook. An audit can lead in really extreme situations into criminal prosecution. It could ultimately lead into a board action. So the way that that audit is handled and when there's genuine exposure, the role of an attorney is to minimize that exposure. You know, if you have someone that has actually defrauded a carrier, the goal becomes that they're going to pay back a portion of what they stole, keep their license and avoid jail time. You know, that's ultimately it. So there are a lot of times where you'll have, I mean, the biggest thing is engage a healthcare attorney. And then the second thing is make sure that healthcare attorney has the proper experience. This is not the time to use your cousin who's a real estate lawyer. <laughs> you know how doctors think. <laughs> no, my cousin Vinny, no my cousin Vinny references there, Jeff. Exactly. <laughs> I was not going to go there. <laughs> Well, <laughs> got it. Um, I think you've given us a lot of valuable information. In fact, we, we didn't even get to half the stuff we wanted to ask you. Um, so we'll, we'll probably have to ask you back or, or that shoddy other partner that you have. We're not sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> would be my pleasure. One of the two. Um, John, any parting words uh, for Vince? I think, you know, this was it's an ominous subject matter, but Vince, uh, you gave some great, valuable information and, and we definitely appreciate that. Thank you again. It's been my pleasure being on with you guys. Excellent. And you proved your partner, John, incorrect. <laughs> See, there you go. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All righty. Thank you, uh, Vince. A pleasure to, to have you on today. Thank you so, Thanks, so much. Great night, guys. Excellent. You too. All right, John. So uh, excellent. That uh, uh, was an excellent interview. Um, uh, perfectly done. Um, uh, really valuable information about getting audited and, and what he's seen and what is what is what has happened. Um, it's a horrible topic, but I'm glad we started addressing it. I think one of our our next uh, on this subject might be. Uh, talking about the defense side of how they go about defending you, uh, what's important. You know, we mentioned a little bit about not altering records and all that kind of stuff, but he, he did give something that is really important. Being asked for records, whether it's one, five, 50, or 100, should never be delegated uh, to somebody else in the office and, and nonchalantly done because yeah. the accuracy of of what's copied and how it's transposed and, and given to the auditors is extremely important. So do not ever think that it's just nothing and 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 don't pay attention yeah. to it. And I would I would bet that's a common mistake. Yeah, yeah, we do see that a lot. Um, so uh, with that being said, um, I think it's time to talk about. Uh, well, maybe we should do the puzzler. Um, yeah, let's uh, 
let's let's move into the puzzler. So last week uh, we had a puzzler, and I've been getting a lot of criticism that our puzzlers are too easy, John. So I'm going to make them tough from now on. But our our puzzler, <laughs> yeah, our, our puzzler was this: uh, we wanted to know the phrase "going to the mattresses" and what movie was that from. Um, and we had a lot of people that responded, which tells me it was way too easy. Uh, but our winner uh, was uh, Dr. Charles Perry, who will receive uh, one of our um, excellent gift prizes that we'll send out to his office. Um, and what it meant, uh, first of all, it was from the movie The Godfather. So it was keeping within our mafia-themed movies. And going to the mattresses, John, if I'm not wrong about this, means that they were going to war with another family, correct? And yeah. it also had a meaning, like, why did they call it going to the mattresses? You want to give us that explanation? Sure, because, uh, you know, they, they, they go on what's called a lamb. They go on a lamb at a hideout, which is typically just a, a house where they bring a dozen mattresses in and they all sleep on the floor on, on these mattresses, you know, equipped with some uh, heavy ammunition, of course, just in case uh, they're spotted. But that's how the term came to be, uh, going to mattresses. They bring their mattresses and, and go on the lam uh, at, at a hideout. And the only reason I really know this, uh, and I'll just bring this up, because remember Dr. Neil Frankel? Who had who's passed sure. away uh, a few years back? He used to say this during his lectures constantly. So I figured he was going across the country lecturing a lot, and he would say that during his lecture, going to the mattresses, and he had to explain it to people. So I figured it gave him a, a good chance. So, uh, like I said, we have a winner, um, and uh, Dr. Charles Perry, congratulations. So this week's puzzler is going to be really tough, and uh, wait, wait till I push this in there. So. Um, here it is. So uh, right now on the screen is a picture. It's from a movie. There are three major actors in this. And I need to know the name of this movie. Um, so I'll leave it up for a minute so they have a good look at this. But this is not an easy one. Um, and I'm finally, not... we're breaking our, our mob movie theme here, Jeff. Yes, I'm breaking the mob mm -hmm. movie theme and moving into, uh, I guess, it's not a hint. You can see they're wearing guns, so it's probably a Western. So I need to know uh, what movie this is and what three actors are in this picture. So I'm making it tough because um, I know our prize packs are, are so valuable. <laughs> All right, so that's this week's Puzzler. Um, I'm introducing a new feature uh, that we uh, talked about uh, uh, briefly uh, at the opening. And uh, this new feature... Um, is what I call uh, podiatry or news, Google, good Google news podiatry. And basically what it is, it's a um, uh, feature that if you are in the news, uh, and specifically if you're in Google news, uh, your name will come up. I have a Google search that goes on. It means you're doing something right. And um, whatever that means uh, is that we want to highlight your office. So uh, this week I looked and two doctors made it. And uh, the point of the good Google news is if I mention you on our podcast and you hear your name through Google good news, um, 
you'll win a prize pack if you just email us at info at essentialadaptations.com. So it's, it's really simple, and that's all you have to do. I think you can do it. Um, oop. So uh, basically, uh, I looked, and we have two doctors in the Google News. One is to- Dr. Tom Bernacki, actually from Michigan, believe it or not. Uh, I had a great article about him and his group practice in Howell and Brighton. Uh, so, Dr. Bernacki, if you're listening, hopefully you are, you'll email us at uh, infoessentialadaptations.com. You'll win a prize pack. And the second is Dr. Alan Rosen from New York. Uh, a great article on Dr. Rosen and the good things he's doing in his practice. And the reason I'm highlighting this is because these are positive things for podiatry. And they have figured out how to make a positive impact in the world because Google News is is picking up on them. So, uh, again, we will do this every week. Hopefully, we'll be able to find uh, enough uh, good news to put put uh, about our colleagues. So, excellent. Um, so, I uh, just want to remind everybody again, if you were looking for uh, that link to the Medicare document we talked about last week, I'm putting it up again. You just go to podiatryriskgroup.com slash speakeasy. You'll be able to grab that document for yourself. And my advice after listening to uh, Vince talk about audits that you do this uh, because this could be an extreme target, especially with the OIG's uh, uh, new uh, work plan for 2020. Excellent. John, believe it or not, time just flew right by. Uh, uh, our episode is already gone. Um, I'll remind everybody. Yeah, I don't know where the time goes. I, I, I just it is past your bedtime. Uh, but our next podcast is July 1st. Uh, the live streaming video podcasts are uh, a lot of fun. And I think that uh, as long as we can do some positive stuff for podiatry, we're going to continue this. Always email us and uh, let us know if uh, you have something you want us to talk about. And uh, you could be one of our guests. Excellent. Very All good. Right. I think uh, that will conclude uh, our podcast. Uh, Good night, John. I know it's way past your bedtime, and uh, uh, we'll see you next time. You got it. Have a great night.